Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Marlon James. He's the multi-award winning author of five novels, including the novel A Brief History of Seven Killings, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2015. His writing is so groundbreaking and powerful that in 2019, Time Magazine named him to the 100 most influential people in the world. He's currently finishing the third book of his Dark Star trilogy, which draws on thousands of years of African history and mythology. And the trilogy has drawn comparisons to Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, but all comparisons aside, it really is a new and terrific force unto itself. Marlon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the dark and stormy. <laughs> I uh, I love this drink. I actually have some funny stories with it. I really, it's more of a summer drink for me usually, and uh, it's so good. I I kind of lose my internal governor. They go down too yeah. easy. Uh, the thing I find about this drink is that it's so simple, most bartenders mess it up. Oh boy, now that was just that's, as I started pouring. That's as you started pouring. Uh, uh, yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, I'll tell you my I'm my trying approach. to think if I, if I had a good one in New York yet. Oh, well, here, this... Oh boy, now, now that... I'm really setting really you down, I am yeah. like... All right, well, first of all, no I, pressure. what about my ginger beer selection? I'm like, what is that, Barrett's? Yeah. Where's that from? Bermuda. Bermuda ginger beer. Yeah, right. Bermuda like to act like they're not part of the Caribbean, but I'll allow it. <laughs> All right. And now I, I also, I generally cut it with a little club soda just so it's not too sweet. Mm-hmm. Is that a tactic you ever? No. No? I'd probably put bitters in it, but I don't know if I put club bitters. soda in Interesting. it. Interesting. I haven't done that. Yeah. All right. This Whoa. happens every time. Yep. <laughs> Take it to the bank. All right. And lime? Of course. Right. It's funny because alcohol kind of is my truth serum, so who knows how this interview is going to Oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Cheers. Cheers. Great to meet you. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right. You know yeah. what? For an islander, I will, I will take pretty good. Beer men also, Jamaicans don't really know superlatives. So like our nice means we're doing cartwheels. <laughs> You know, so pretty good. Is, pretty good means it's pretty damn good. I'll take it. All right. Yeah. Thank you. So you were born in Jamaica in 1970, mm-hmm. right? And I read your mom was a police detective, right? And your dad also in the police, and then became a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And they were they were very supportive of your literary approach. I, I think I read they were giving you books by Shakespeare and O. Henry and things like that. I mean, I don't know if I'd say supportive so much as they just left me alone. Yeah. 
you know, it's it's not like they were like, here are some books, read them. It's more like we don't care if you read them or not, which in itself was pretty good because then I would read, you know, I'd read, um, you know, O. Henry stories or Greek mythology, but then I'd also end up reading. Kyle Gibran's The Prophet, which sounds profound, but it's really not. It's because there were naked pictures in there, um, which left me alone yeah. <laughs> to 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 read. So it's more of more sort of they created a kind of environment where literature was free and reading was. I mean, you could read whatever. Half of the stuff I read, I didn't understand at all. But it's just again, that's what happens when books are just freely lying around. Was that? The amount that they sort of made literature available and, and to the extent they supported it, was that above the average for the folks you were? Um, I mean, not really, because there weren't that many books books in the house. Not really. This is why I know all of them. I remember all of them. Um, I was just lucky that there was a library down the street. Mm. And, um, and a lot of the books I ended up reading was from that library. Yeah. Um, my mom would have, you know, yes, the O. Henry's are wrong, but it's not like new books are coming into the house yeah. at any at any point. I think the O. Henry book is still there, <laughs> unless I stole it, but I think it's still there. So it's um, the the I guess the books that were there made me curious about other books, which eventually mm-hmm. led me to a library and as as a part of the school library and the neighborhood library and just reading anything I could grab my hands on. Yeah. You wrote a, a piece in the Times that became a famous piece. I think in mm. 2015 that came out where you, you mm. talked about your youth in Jamaica and mm-hmm. the need to leave. And you wrote in the piece, whether in a plane or a coffin, I knew I had to get out of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the early years there? Um, yeah. You know, I think I remember, um, I think it was Daily Mail, somebody read that. And went down to Jamaica thinking they were going to find some anti-gay Gestapo that was out trying to get me. When it was really nothing like that at all. It was all super internal. Um, yeah, I mean, I was sort of very, 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 I guess, closeted and deep in myself. And, and um, you know, I also really wanted to be a writer. It's not all just about Even know, then, like in those early so young years, you knew. Yeah, I just didn't think there was a way to be one. And then I got to the point where I realized the only way I was going to, you know, leave where I was and get out of the situation I was in was to sort of write my way out. And situation being, you know, um, in a job I didn't like, in, uh, you know, a literary scene that wasn't existing, in um, a place with not much opportunities to be a writer. I remember once I went to the, the university and I asked, how could I get a job here? And the person said, well, two things need to happen. Either you become too big to ignore or one of us die. I said, well, at least you're honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, um, you know, uh, feeling that I'd you know, sort of reached the end of myself and mm-hmm. there is nowhere else left to go. I the That sense of your internalizing and aloneness comes through mm-hmm. in that piece too there's one piece that one line you wrote in there that i was like sort of heartbreaking to me you, mm-hmm. you have an older brother who was at the same school and you right. were feeling uh you know you were put, not fitting in to put mm-hmm. it mildly and <laughs> you said to save your older brother you would pretend that you were not related mm-hmm. that is like one of the most generous and heartbreaking things i've ever read yeah um you know, when when you're when I'm there, at least when I was there, I didn't even think about it in any context. I think you know, he was. I mean, he was super cool. I was not. 
um, you know, I mean, people were calling me girl names from the second day of school. And, um, and yeah, I just thought it was, it would embarrass him. He didn't even know about it until what, maybe in my mid forties, probably from this article. He didn't know that you did that. He didn't know you were gay or he didn't know that you were protecting he didn't know him was, in this way. I was protecting him in that way or I was, yeah, that, uh, that yeah. I did that. Um, yeah, it got to the point where even now, um, people who went to the same high school and people are still shocked to know we're related. It was funny because at one point he had to repeat a year and ended up in my class and people still didn't know. Oh my gosh. I wouldn't sit near him. It's just did not acknowledge each other. Oh. So you, you go from high school to University of the West Indies, mm-hmm. which uh, I think it headquartered in Jamaica, but has a number of campuses. Really, right. You were in the Jamaica mm-hmm. campus? Jamaica campus, yeah. yeah. And that sound for according to this piece, still mm. sort of on the New York Times piece here, those were those were good years and you were able to sort of great find years. common people with common interests in literature mm. and other things. Yeah, and literature I mean literature but really more music. Music and, and and arts and film and T V just kids were basically living the same pop culture moment I was living. Mm. And um it was. It felt like what did I tell us? I'm pretty sure I told a therapist it felt like a reprieve, which it kind of did. Um, you know, people liking me for me, people, you know, they're college kids. They're not, they're not necessarily worried about what you sound like or who you're from or or um, how cool you are or how many girlfriends you might have. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamaica is a hyper-masculine, you know, masculinity almost as a fetish. Yeah. In that country, I still mean, to this day, or I think you and I are like the same age. Almost, I mean, exactly. it's way more complicated now. When I was growing up, I mean, it was like so obsessed with masculinity. I got one girlfriend was gay, uh, so it's it's and um, that pressure is was relentless. It didn't really let up until college, mm-hmm. which is why I have such great feelings about college and why I thought college was kind of a reprieve, or at least, as, for want of a better phrase, a safe space. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to touch on one more thing before we sort mm-hmm. of move off the the Jamaica period. But I <laughs> I read this incredible passage. I so I've done a ton of reading about you and Damn. by you. I didn't even know there was a ton, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there it is. It's, it's and growing every day. Mm-hmm. But um, you read uh, a passage from a novel by Toni Morrison. I mm-hmm. think you know you had you had experimented even with like a voluntary exorcism, and right, 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 really right, wrestling right. with the stuff, and then read a passage by Toni Morrison. Can you can you tell that story if you know the one I'm referencing? Yeah, it's probably, it's, um, when I read Sula. Yeah. And um, I like how we just casually breeze for the exorcism part. Well, yep. <laughs> I, I don't want to hammer that too much. For, I, I, if, you're, if you're up for talking about that. No, I, I mean, you know, it it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. I, you know, it's, I, I went through what some people call an exorcism, and I was in evangelical church. That's the one you see on, t- you see on TV. So they would call it deliverance. Um, anybody who knows their psychology and a psychotherapist would know it was ex-gay. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know it was that. I just thought I was being delivered from evil spirits. So I did it. And it was long, and it was like three hours, and you scream a lot, and you cry a lot, and you barf in a bag an awful lot. How, what do you, something to make you barf, or how do you? I realize this is where I realize how your body can process trauma. Your body can process trauma in all sorts of ways, including scatological. I can see why a person who's terrified pisses himself or something. It was sort of like that, and um, and again, it's just this sort of. 
I'm trying to summarize it in a way that it don't seems like I'm avoiding it, where they're just kind of subjected to this all sorts of trauma about what this is, and then at one moment they they ask you to sort of declare yourself free from the demons of homosexuality or whatever it is. Are and, you going through this with other people? At the yeah, same there are time? like two people. There are two priests in the room and me. But no one else in your position, going like trying to have an exorcism. It's no, like no class. It's like you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, when you're done, you you do feel lighter. Well, you are lighter. You just vomited out two thirds <laughs> of your breakfast. Um, but you do feel lighter. You do feel sort of like a certain clarity. Um, it's kind of like this euphoria. You know, at the risk of sounding gross, it's kind of like euphoria after you really threw up a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, um, which is kind of what happened, and um, it did give me clarity actually. Um, for how long? For a good while. I, you know, clarity in the sense that you know, I used to think, man, I can't give up the temptation, and I tried. I can't give up the sin, and I tried. What if I gave up the church, and that one stuck? So, you know, that was that. I have no idea what the original question was. I just divert diverted into this. Well, we're gonna, we were going to culminate on Tony oh, Morrison. Oh, Tony Morrison but, thing. Yeah. So, so I was, um, I was reading Tony Morrison because some our um, a writer Elizabeth Nunes um, told me to read her because I was a writer and I didn't have a clue about women, which is true. Well, back then I hope. And uh, she said just to read Tony Morrison. Well, I thought to get a clue about women, you just needed to, needed to know one or two. But that's what I thought. And she'd ask me, uh, well, how many women have you read? And I think I had like four and they're all dead. And so she made me read Tony Morrison. I read um, all of it, all of her books, and I love all of them. But Sula, you know, those of you who don't know, Sula is this kind of free spirit that descends on a town. She's kind of both liberation and destruction. So she, she, she have people, the whole town see things they've never seen before, but she also wrecks some lives. And then she sleeps with her best friend's husband. I mean, all in a day's work for Sula. So Sula is dying, and she's on her deathbed, and the woman who's, who was wronged, her former best friend, finally confronts her. And Sula's talking about how she sure did live in this world and did all this and so on. And Nell says, you know, well, um, what do you have to show for it? And I remember thinking, yes, yeah, Sula, what do you have to show for it? I wasn't thinking about my own life at all, although my life at the time I thought was in kind of shambles. And Sula says, show to who? And that probably wasn't a big moment for a lot of people, but that was a devastating, thunder-striking moment for right. me. I have no obligation to show anything to anyone. It never occurred to me that I had no obligation to show anything to anyone. It never occurred to me that I could live only to please myself. It never occurred to me that I could actually think about what I need first. Mm-hmm. Um, even the whole idea of being gay, all I could think of is what would my mother think? What would my such and such thing? I never think about what I think about it. Mm-hmm. It's always about how would such, how would other people react? How would people judge me? How would people do this? Were your parents religious or was it just more in the, the culture? It's more the culture. They weren't religious. My mom's more religious now, but they really weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that book, that line, it just it just never occurred to me, the whole idea of living for yourself and not answering to anybody. Yeah. Didn't. So how was this in the college years when you had this? No. With- no, this was after. So the one, funny thing about leaving college is when you leave college and, you, and go back into the world, the world is exactly as you left it. So the homophobes are still there. The people who, who think you dress weird or you sound weird or you talk funny or your music's weird. 
Um, so after college, you came back to your high school environment, your high school. You home. know, it's funny. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't even that. I I went into advertising thinking, okay, this is must be where the cool kids work. Um, surely these people would be open minded. These people would be learned and whatever you want to call them. And I ended up right back in the same society. Mm-hmm. You know, people like wow. You know, asking every day. You know, if you have a girlfriend or. Um, all you know, you know, tra- dropping lines like you know, all, all these creative people who are gay, and this person in this place who's gay, so just this sort of um, relentless policing of sexuality, mm-hmm. which I think is just part of our culture, honestly. Um, but it felt like I ended up right back at the place where I left behind for three years, yeah. So you do get out of Jamaica, though, not mm-hmm. in a coffin, in a plane, and you take your first job in Minnesota, where it's freezing half uh, a year. It's freezing right now. <laughs> so you're, you're teaching writing there. I'm teaching writing. I got it written because they wanted me. Um, I wasn't even supposed to be there more than a year. It was a one-year appointment. And um, in a year, I really liked it. They really liked me. Um, and just coincidentally, the person who actually got the job I applied for quit. And I kind of moved into his job, and I've been yeah. there ever since. And at that point, so you took the job. You were not yet a published author, but you... No, I'd, I'd, I'd published my first novel, and I'd sold the second o, one. 05 was the first one, John. Mm-hmm. 05 okay. was the first one, John Cruz Devil. So you published that, and then you got the job. And then I got the job. Okay. All right. So you had put... And mm-hmm. I, I read 70 rejections on the first novel? 78. Not that I'm being particular. Uh. But... <laughs> Were you with one agent through that whole period? I didn't have an agent. Oh, you were just submitting? That, that agent was also one of the rejections. <laughs> um, I mean, it didn't seem like a it didn't seem like a, 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 a you know a massive figure because I never actually sat down to count it until way in. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a grind. You, you send out yeah. letters to like five, six agents, publishers. You hear nothing. You go, okay, I'll just send out some more. It's the same letter. Yeah. And I just doing that, and I kept just, okay, I didn't hear anything else sent out. And I really wasn't paying attention to it because there's other things going on. And I remember I got this letter from um, an indie press. It, wasn't a, it was just a note that says, not for us. And that's when I went, you know what, maybe I should check how many of these I've sent out. And that's when I realized I sent out 78 of them. Wow. And um, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know if I was, if I was counting, I would have made it to 78. So when, when you got the first good news, was it we want to have a meeting or someone just sent you a letter back saying, we'll buy it, here's, here's a number? Oh, God, it was nothing like that. Um, I mean, before all of that happened, there was a whole me destroying the manuscript part and the, just saying, you know what, if, if 78 people think something's wrong with this, clearly something must be wrong if so many people... Um, rejected it, turned turned it down. Um, could seventy eight people be wrong? At the time, I didn't think so. I think surely something wrong here. So I destroyed it. I just sort of had this ritual burning of it. Then I deleted it, and then um, I remember almost. You started from scratch. What the, the, what you ultimately sold as the first? No, book? I um I deleted it. I did it from my friends' computers. I just erased all traces of it, and um it was I don't know maybe a year two years later. Um, this writer. I went to another workshop for no real reason, really, and the person demanded to see it, and said they weren't leaving Jamaica. I'm Frank Kelly Jones, kind of a mentor of mine. I'm definitely a mentor of mine. So she's not leaving Jamaica until I give it to her. And I'm like, this manuscript don't exist. I'm pretty sure there's no way I'm going to find it. And I searched anyway. Turns out undelete doesn't work. 
Yeah. Certainly not after a year. And um, I found it in um, the, 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 the Gen Xers and older will notice. I went in an Outlook Express outbox. Wow. I don't even think Outlook Express exists anymore, does it? I have, I have no idea. That's like the days yeah. of Netscape and, and whatever. Right, yeah, they're using AOL as your email account, which I actually do. Yeah. Um, oh, we didn't have AOL in Jamaica. Uh, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, yeah, and I found it. I found a manuscript in in um, in the outbox. I sent it to my friend Robert, and that's what I printed out. And I remember I didn't have enough paper to print it, so I just cut the first twenty pages and the last twenty pages. Which nobody has yeah. asked for since, so maybe that was a good thing. So and that so that it is the original manuscript that you sold ultimately. Yeah, like, digging this out of some minus forty pages. Yeah, yeah. And that's and she read it and loved it and sent it to her publisher, um, Johnny Templer Akashic Books, and he loved it. What got her so interested in having you find this? That she she'd seen some other writing of yours of she'd short seen stories. Other writing. Or so I was in this. You know, so the only reason I showed up at this workshop was that I I, did, I went to it a year before, and I know how much money it takes to put them on. I'm the one of waste people's money that's the only reason i went i wasn't going there to do anything really mm-hmm. and they would she kept keep giving these writing prompts and i'd write something and she's like this is you know this is like why are you in this class you don't even need to take this class or blah, blah blah i'm like yeah i'm i'm pretty much just here and um and she asked if i wrote anything i'm like no i'm not really a writer and then other people in the class who remembered said oh he wrote a novel he just doesn't want to show you and I'm like, no, I destroyed this novel. That's why you can't see it. That's an incredible story. Yeah. So from the ashes, like a phoenix. <laughs> so um, before we get into your even more extraordinary literary success, I, I usually have a moment to talk about process mm-hmm. and like even silly mechanical questions. Like, for example, do you write by hand or do you key it into the laptop? Oh, God, I can't write by hand. I wrote one novel by hand and I'll never do it again. One that's published? Yeah. John Which- Crozevo was written by hand. And I will never do it again. <laughs> what? Just too laborious? It's, it's too laborious. It's too. It's too. I don't want to write a novel to then write it again. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I think that was it. I felt writing a novel and then it's not even the writing again. It's the transcribing. You feel like you're taking notes for your own book, and that is a tedious process. I also realize I like to write as fast as I think. And you type and I, faster and than you I, write? I type as fast as I think. I can't oh, okay. write as fast oh, as Oh, interesting. I I'm yeah. the opposite. I'm like a hunt and peck guy. I, yeah. I've got like six fingers going, and I, I can write faster than I can really? you know, type. Yeah. Damn. I'm a terrible typist. No, definitely I, I type. How about outlining? I, I, by the way, I decided the drink needs more rum. It was like, I think that was the <laughs> issue. A little light on the rum. I don't know if you want that too, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna... drinking it pretty slow. Okay. So do you outline or do you go right in? I outline. Um, online to a huge extent. Um, I'll have pages and pages and books and books of notes. And then I'll start writing and ignore them. Yeah. I think, well, I outline want to just get all this crap out of my head. Yeah. Um, I think if I'm dangling too many pieces in my head and I can't write because I just feel all this clutter. Well, for the Dark Star trilogy, for example, mm. I mean, that, so listeners know there there's something like 80 plus characters mm-hmm. and it's, I mean, it's a huge, expansive universe. Right. I, that seems like something where there could be some preparatory work there to sort of establish, you know, who's doing yeah. what, and living where, and yeah. I mean that 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 whole universe exists on my, you know, my study wall because I've post-its all over. I can't remember the, the color of the original paint. That's great. Uh, uh, so yeah, so you know, there's that. You should there's take no a picture of that and like put it oh, somewhere. A in the, somewhere. I'll have to check it. Out. Maybe it's on your website. I'll have to go. There, there was there was a picture of it in Vanity Fair a few years ago. Um, 
But yeah, I you know all these posts, all these notes on the wall, all these pictures, all these maps, all these photos, um, some of the illustrations I drew. Yeah. Um, because it's yeah, it's um, one. It's I'm trying to build this world and present this world at the same time. The characters are moving through it as if they take it for granted. I might mm-hmm. be a tourist, but they're not. So I still have to write a novel in a way in which you know the world is real to them it's a given to them even though it's it's not for me was it all at this scale from the outset like your vision was was for this or it grew as you got into it um the research was always pretty big the story actually given the research i think the story is actually pretty simple given all the stuff i research Mm -hmm. um yeah it's i uh i i just found a picture of the first copy of brief history that i got and it would have been September 2014. And right below it is a picture, is a book on African ceremonies. So I was researching this novel from before Reef History even came out. Wow. And what kind of research are you doing? I, I know it's, it draws mm. on a lot of Af- African mythology, but many mythologies. So. Many mythologies. African mythology, Asian mythology. Um, I mean, every, you know, if you go far back in the mythologies, they start to sound very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, you go far back, everybody has a flood myth. Right, exactly. We're all yeah. drawing from the same... Right, uh, everybody uh, has a flood myth, everybody has dragons, and everybody has giants. So you go far back enough, you'll find all of that. Yeah, they're probably all finding dinosaur bones, and thinking, oh my God, it must have been a dragon, and of course yeah. there's like, you know, someone with a growth mm. hormone disorder who was nine feet tall, <laughs> you know? I'm sure Grendel was just a really tall guy <laughs> with lots of, you know, lots of, of, of glandular issues. When you're in the process of writing and mm. sort of actively putting pages on the pile every day, will you read other fantasy work or do you try to stay in your universe? I read a lot of work, not all of it fantasy. I mean, I reread stuff like Gormenghast. Um, uh, what else would I, I'm trying to think what other fantasy I was reading at the time. The thing is, I, more than fantasy, I'd read what fantasy writers read. So, yes, I'm reading every myth, every Icelandic saga, every Viking voyage, um, the Japanese horror stories, or African folklore, African um, epics. There are dozens of them. So that's what I was reading. I was reading the source material other writers would have read Yeah, more than anything else. I mean, still read occasional novel, but really more the, the sources. All right, so let's get into the next phase of your career. In <laughs> 09, you published The Book of Night Women, mm-hmm. and then in 2014, of course, A Brief History of Seven Killings. Right. And by this time, you're now a literary star. How did, how did things change for you at that point? Um, well, more, people pay atten- more people paid attention to my Facebook posts than that. <laughs> uh, well, not anymore. I think nobody pays attention to Facebook anymore. Um, I think, yeah, there was certainly more scrutiny um, on that part. I mean, it's nice making money from books. Yeah. That's that's a whole new thing. <laughs> um, did, did you get a raise out of Minnesota? I'm trying to think. Did I? Maybe uh, you'd be on. You'd have solid grounds to ask for one. I mean, you're now uh, kind of putting them on blast. No one on 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 radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's it did change other things. I, I, actually, there was a Marlon James Day, which was surreal. Where. Where in Minnesota, it was in, October oh, 20th. I don't nice. think it's a regular thing. <laughs> I think it was just that one time. Um, and I know you did a Tolkien reading in the, in the yeah, UK. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I gave the Tolkien lecture in 2018, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, appeared on some TV shows, appeared on Seth Meyers and all of that. Yeah, it, um, and it did the change. Time magazine, or I mean, the that's, Time magazine, that's huge. Thing and, and so on. Yeah, it did change a lot of things. I mean, I mean, being well known, sure beats not known. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and I know, actually, I read you went back to Jamaica to do a book signing or a book reading mm-hmm. at this point. How, how is that sort of, or maybe you go back regularly, but how, how is it going back I mean, I go as a literary now. star? Well, I mean, on one hand, yeah, I think people pay attention and, and you know, stuff makes news. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's there. I think, I think Jamaicans are also proud of, you know, you know, whatever accomplished and, and standing as a writer. Your parents are there saying, we gave him Shakespeare as a kid. Yeah, my mom, definitely. <laughs> um, my dad passed away in 2012, so before all of this. Um, 2008, rather, sorry, before all of this. Eight, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, it's it's on one hand, yeah, but on the other hand, and one of the things I love about Jamaicans is that they're also sort of over it and not nearly impossible to impress. So my life there is pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah, as it you know, as it was before. And the thing about Jamaica, though, that I I think that um, people may be surprised that is you know, as a pretty out queer dude, I I get warmer receptions from Jamaicans in the country than I do from say in the states. Um, you know, I, I go to Jamaica, I'll be invited to this, or I'm on this, you know, I'm on this panel, or invited to this dinner, or they want me to come on this TV show, or people know who I am, and so on, and I don't feel, you know, like I'm a target or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is it different here in the States? It's different here in the States in that people here don't ask me, for, don't invite me to anything. Yeah, even in Jamaicans in New York, I've never been to anything here. Yeah, the concert doesn't invite me to anything. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sort of an embarrassment. I don't know. But what I find is, and this is just my experience, it's, it's certainly not a, a broad statement about anybody or any diaspora, but what I find sometimes is Jamaicans on in the island, on in the country, can evolve as the country evolves. Um, sometimes Jamaicans... And it's not Jamaicans. Almost any immigrant community can tell you this. Sometimes when an immigrant comes to somewhere like America, they stay where they were, at least mentally and socially. So they develop a Jamaican pocket within their A Jamaican pocket, and- but a Jamaican pocket from the 60s is still a Jamaican pocket from the 60s. Mm. So, like, so it doesn't evolve the way the country back home is evolving. Right. So you yeah. find Jamaicans in the country evolve faster. That's interesting. Sort of frozen in time once yeah, it gets here. Yeah, which is not what people would think. They think because they're here, because we're in America, they must be open and they see all these people and they're open-minded. And that is true to a point. But I think it's also super true that people just sort of huddle together and people come together and, and they can keep their values and they can keep their their ideals and they can keep their community. And obviously, more often than not, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that I'm far more likely to get an invitation to go to somewhere from the Jamaican government in Jamaica than I am, say, the Jamaica embassy in D.C., no, that's interesting. I hadn't hadn't thought about that dynamic well, I mean, of, of emigration. Well, you, you, I, I mean, you know, you talk to queer kids from any, you know, talk to Indian queer kids or, or you know, Thai queer kids or Nigerian queer kids. They'll say, yeah, funny enough, when I go back to Nigeria, I feel free. When I'm here, I'm under all the expectations to be this, 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 and I can't be that. Huh. I want to ask you how it changed for you 
uh, also with like agents and publishers. Were you getting mm-hmm. pressure from? So after the you know success of a brief history, mm-hmm. was your agent saying, well, "Let's do another one just like this"? Because you know you obviously didn't do that. Yeah, my agent didn't think that I thought I should have at one point. Mm-hmm. I remember saying it to her. So I have two ideas for a book. I have the idea for a book that makes perfect sense that I should do, and this crazy ass thing yeah. that um, probably makes no sense. And she listened to me give the proposal for both. And she's like, yeah, that's a solid a solid idea for that follow-up book. You know, but you should see her face when you talked about that crazy... Oh, she's reading you. Okay. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And she encouraged me to do it. One, also because, you know, before I did Brief History, Brief History scared me almost all the way writing it. Because a lot of what I wrote in there I've never written before. And certainly not in that style. And not with that, um, I certainly didn't, you know, write about people who actually exist, mm-hmm. um, write about a culture, and not, a, you know, write about a culture, you know, that is still pretty volatile, to write about people who are actual killers. Quite a few people in Brief History actually did exist. Mm-hmm. Most of them I changed the names. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you ran through the whole legal department on, you know. What yeah. You, but it was still the point I was making that the, the 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 thing brief history has in common with Black Leopard Red Wolf, and I think what my agent saw was there was this mix between sort of mix between thrill and fear, mm-hmm. which I think is exactly what I'm looking for when I'm writing a book. And if I don't feel absolutely thrilled and thoroughly flipping terrified, I usually don't write that book. Yeah. Well, she, it's good. She knows mm-hmm. like how, what you're gonna you're gonna deliver what you're yeah what you're feeling. I'm amazed when people talk about how they feel confident when writing. I'm like, wow, I've never yeah. felt confident writing a single thing. I'm scared out of my flipping mind. Uh, you know, talk about the the sort of genres and the, the how it feels. But I, mm. I also wanted. I read somewhere where you were saying that you were you were talking about the criticism you were hearing mm. about some of your works that are. You know, some say it's too literary to be sci-fi, and it's too sci-fi to be literary. Mm-hmm. I think was the the line mm-hmm. and uh it, it is it is kind of frustrating here like the various you know everyone has to have a genre or a category like mm-hmm. there should be two categories there's good and not good and that's yeah. subjective yeah but h- how do you feel about these you know where you fit in the category um i mean i guess categories can be useful to a point when you want to identify something but more often than not they're they're limiting and, and kind of useless and um and it it just creates these these standards by which you judge things yeah um, at the same time, I have seen the, the the other opposite where somebody is, you know, reading Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and because they don't see the usual literary signifiers, they think it's a bad book. So mm-hmm. it's it's both that I I you know I also you know come across readers who don't have an ear for fantasy or sci-fi, and kind of bring that contempt into how they look at it. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, but and then there are. Um, People who just don't pay attention altogether. It's interesting. Like the, the response in France is interesting, for example, because after brief history, they had me as this sort of sort of avant-garde literary person, and then Black Leopard. Most of those critics and reviewers didn't touch the book because they're like, "No, this is going off into a sci-fi thing, and I don't write about sci-fi." Interesting. I, it, I, I totally agree with your thoughts on this. Mm. Even even down to sort of comparing it to other books, like these mm-hmm. comparison things, saying. 
you know, your trilogy is like Game of Thrones or mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. And that's fine. Like, that doesn't infuriate me to, to no. see that kind of stuff. I get that there are so many books out there and we need ways to curate them and mm-hmm. to help people find the books they want to find and right. and that sort of thing. But it isn't that meaningful, really, to, to do that sort of thing. No. And I think it, it's, it, it goes back to, to what, what always happens is that then people start ranking books. So um, Margaret Atwood is up here because she's speculative fiction. Ursula K. Le Guin is down there because she's sci-fi, um, which is a category that neither Ursula K. Le Guin or Margaret Atwood have stood for. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't find a bigger admirer of Ursula K. Le Guin's work than Atwood, and vice versa. Um, but for, but the 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 industry, the critics, or so on, feel that definition put that definition there not just the distinction but to rank them mm-hmm. and i think we still do that we rank we rank genres yeah. as writers you know there are certain things that i find in sci-fi that i don't find in any other genre sci-fi writers and fantasy writers aren't afraid of the big questions mm-hmm. um a literary fiction author takes on why are we here we go what kind of pretentious hogwash right. is this crap yeah um but sci-fi writers take it on all the time yeah and and but it can sometimes sort of incidentally touch on answering that question, which is uh, yeah. So how do you feel about the category post-colonial, which is one where you are often listed as one of the leading voices? Like, yeah. how, how do you feel about being listed in a post-colonial, and what what does that even mean to, to I mean, you? It's funny because I, I I teach a literature class called Beyond Postcolonial. Um, the problem with postcolonial to me is that colonial is still the context, and it assumes that um the stuff I write or anybody of my generation writes is in response to empire. Uh, you know, if I'm, you know, I'm what now, 52, it means, you know, the global empire that I grew up in a shadow, you know, grew up in a shadow of was America, you know, not the UK, you know, and there's nothing about, you know, Britain that speaks to me necessarily, certainly not as a Jamaican. Mm-hmm. And I think... Again, it's like anything. Postmodern is still using modern as a context. You know, post anything is using that that suffix as a catalyst. Right, and I, I think, it's... yeah, I think you know, there there with the stuff we are writing about America, about queer lives, about just the country in itself. I think it goes beyond what postcolonial was, and that's not to not postcolonial books because those books are super important. Mm-hmm. You know, a book like Abandoning the River is a postcolonial book. Mm-hmm. And it's showing things that you know. If for, if for nothing else, we still need to we still need to um, take stock of what colonialism did to us. We clearly haven't done it yet, or haven't done it enough. And it's something that we're still coming to terms with. Yeah, and just so listeners know, I think post-colonial. I, I looked up the technical definition. And mm. I'll, I'll probably hack it up here right now, but it's essentially for a community or country that was once a colony. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the challenges facing that community as they emerge from you know a colonial presence mm. being removed like it, and it, as you say it doesn't mm. like remove one day the next like hey, hey we're fine now it's like mm. there's still so many remnants of that period yeah but I, I i still think jamaica is coming out of jamaica is coming out of more of more of the influence of the united states um the pressures of 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 the 70s the pressure to not be communist like cuba um, you know the, the economic stranglehold of the IMF and the World Bank, 
all those things mean a lot more than you know coming out of the yoke of British colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, large, you know, large because I don't think the British gave us much. They love to talk about the trains they gave us. They have a thing about trains. I was in India a few day uh, a few days ago. It was the same thing. Colonialism, blah blah. But you got trains. I'm like, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the trains, Britain. Um, it's but other than that, um, there really wasn't much substantive that the British left us. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get to the lightning round a little bit, but uh, <laughs> uh, one quick. Uh, Question for you: What's next for Dark Star? You get the third book's underway. The third book's underway. It's called White Wing Dark Star. That's all I'm going to say about it. Is there a publication date yet? Well, the, we were looking at um, this is what now 23, so probably 24. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's again, it's another character with a totally different view of what happened, and. Um, that's all I'm going to say, because even my editor doesn't know who the narrator is. All right. Well, looking forward to it. And then actually, one last question. I, mm. I have to touch on your influences, which, you know, mm. having read up on you, are awesome and varied from Hellboy to mm. Shakespeare and the X-Men and, yeah. and a number of folks. I, is mm. What would you name as sort of like, if you could sort of riff off your top, you know, five or so influences? Oh, Jesus. Um, five influences, Tony Morrison... Um, Chris Clearman's time at X Men. Who else would I say? Salman Rushdie. Hmm. Um, that's what three. Whatever number feels natural. Ah, uh, Jessica Hagedorn, who um, is a Filipino American writer whose book Dog Eaters, I remember thinking was the best novel about Jamaica I ever read, except it's set in the Philippines. And if you grew up in Kingston or Manila or Mexico City or even like Cape Town, you know this book and you know the story and you just feel at home. Um, that's what, four? I'm trying to think of who else. Eh, you can go to those four. Four is good. Mm-hmm. All right, so then on to the lightning round. The lightning I'm going to have a little round. bit more oh my of my, my dark and stormy, mm-hmm. which I'm going to have to get your recipe on. I'm not sure. I, this is the first time I tried this ginger beer, and I got it from a, you know, instead of getting like the Gosling's pairing of ginger beer, I, I got the Bermuda it, I one. I don't think you need bitters, though. Bitters is better? Okay. Mm, not a lot. People. That's the part that usually kills people's dark and stomach, because they overdo the bitters. All right. But like one dash. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. All right. That'll be... When you come back, <laughs> when, you, when the third installment is out in the trilogy, we'll, uh, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, I'll make an even better dark and stormy. Okay. So the lightning round, your favorite mm-hmm. book as a kid. Favorite book as a kid, do comics count? Because it's definitely X-Men. X-Men, okay. Yeah. Book you're reading now. Book I'm reading now. So I'm reading, God, I'm reading three books. I'm reading, is it Husa, Husa's Stay True, which is, I said it when I was reading to say it to somebody, it's like Sonic Youth's 100% if it were a book. So it's basically a platonic love letter from a live guy to a dead guy. It's it's a fantastic, yeah. fantastic book. So I'm reading that, and I'm reading... Actually, I'm rereading Roberto Bolaño's Savage Detectives. Because Brief History was a failed attempt to copy that book. That's funny. Wow. So I'm trying to read it again to say, okay, what book, what failed attempt of a book I'm going to write, read right after reading this again? That's one more failed attempt to win another Man Booker <laughs> Prize. That sounds good. Wolverine or Hellboy in a fight? Oh, God. Well, they both are going to survive because they're both kind of immortal. 
I, you know what? I think people think Wolverine is a blunt instrument and he's not, which is a mistake people always make with Wolverine. Whereas I think Hellboy is kind of all rage. I don't think he necessarily thinks about stuff much. He's not like he's Hulk. He's not going to go smash, smash, smash. But I do think Wolverine may be a more strategic thinker than he is. All right. We'll give him the edge by, by a yeah. bit. But of course, they both live to fight another day. <laughs> uh, fewest people ever at one of your book events. Um, fewest ever was one. It was um, it was in Seattle. I don't have to tell the venue in just in case they want to invite me again. <laughs> and one person showed up because this guy in this rock band thought he would set me up, and I'm like, wow, the one person who tried to set me up didn't read the bio. <laughs> so this poor woman was there. She didn't really, not really into books. And I'm not really the woman. <laughs> it was terrible. But that was it. One person, and she didn't show up for the reading. Oh, that's funny. And now you're doing, you know, Symphony Space and I don't know that kind of I, stuff. You never get over it, man. You always, I'm always shocked when people are in a room. When I show, when I show up for a reading and people are there, I'm, all, I'm still surprised. I'm, I'm used to, you know, six or five or four. I remember once mm-hmm. it was six people, San Francisco six, and I'm like, all right, we can do this. Yeah, right. And then, and then, the PA came over about nobody's at their stations. I realized everybody there was working at Barnes and Noble, so they had to go back to their stations. So the re- re- I think it was then down to two. It is, you know, it is hard. It, just the idea that anybody would shell out twenty something mm. bucks for a book, you know, to read yeah. something we write is, uh, yeah, is and, or that people will, you know, show up at a reading. I mean, people don't really. The thing is, you're not old. Nobody owes you an audience. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, you know, nobody owes you a, a book sale. Um, if they buy, God bless them, but they don't owe you. You're not, you're not owed an audience or anything. Yeah. Oh. It's funny. I, I just I love that question for everybody because it mm. is sort of a fun, humbling story that even when you're winning prizes in your time 100, <laughs> you can remember the day when only one person oh, was showing well, up. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I've been through it. Best concert you've ever been to? Wow. Would you believe the best concert I've ever been to was Deer Hoof? I don't even know who that is. So Darehoof is this sort of indie band, a Japanese singer, a drummer, I think a bassist, very sort of artsy, abstract indie rock, which sounds like you wouldn't type of band you wouldn't sit near. And they did a concert in Minnesota, and even they were shocked how good they were. We just wouldn't let them go. They had like six encores. Did, did you just catch them like in a zone of genius they that were night? In like the they... zone of genius. It was a great album they were, they were promoting. And uh, you know it's 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 sort of this sort of you know it's very artsy. It's like really really artsy stuff like Stereo Lab with a Japanese singer and the best drummer in rock. And we all of us were like, is this actually happening? Is this the greatest? How is this the greatest thing we've ever seen? And I've seen, you know, I've seen some of the greatest bands of all time. And that little show where it we went where, small venue like a little small venue which isn't, doesn't even exist anymore. And um, we just wouldn't let them go, and they wouldn't leave. And it was just, they just, it was just killer after killer. It was the best show I've ever. Oh, been that to. sounds great! I was like you're part of a, a this <laughs> event and experience together. Most glaring differences between living in Minnesota and New York. Glaring differences. Well, the as the audience knows, you're you're mainly in Brooklyn. I'm mainly in Brooklyn now, but um, things about Minnesota. I feel I can back in Minnesota without the fear that I will die tonight. <laughs> Which is how I feel when I'm back in New York. I've just have to to back in New York is to just come to terms with death. 
I'm yeah. amazed people do it and here with these the city I am, bikes. I'm like, I love that it's too. But my I God. um I I I don't know. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, because I don't think about it when I'm biking in in Minnesota. We just have so many bike lanes, and um, you know, one of the great things that Minnesota did or still does is that whenever a train line kind of dies, it just turns into a bike lane. So you can really get around the state without never seeing a car. What well, I mean, it's going to be like two degrees there tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, what do people bike even in those temperatures? Oh, I was an all rounder. I bike through the entire thing. Oh my gosh! And you're a Jamaican. How I are know. you adjusting to yeah, this climate? That, well, better question is, how do I adapt back to Jamaica? I right. don't because <laughs> now I'm there. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll take this heat. That's and they're funny. like, what do you mean you? I'm like, I can't live here anymore. Are Minnesotans nicer on the average or? They're way nicer on the average, but don't be, you know, that can be misleading. Uh, Minnesotans are friendly. They're not necessarily open. Okay. So case in point, I'm biking. I have bike accidents all the time. You know, I'll, I mean, I'm sure I've broken nearly all my fingers now. Um, if I have a bike accident, 10 people are going to stop and help me. And make sure I'm all right, make sure I'm good, and so on. Not a single one is going to give me their number mm-hmm. to follow up. Uh, and, and that's it. It's, it's, we're friendly, but we're not open. I also, How to go down uh, in New York if you have an accident? I mean, you know, the, the thing about New Yorkers is that New Yorkers, aren't, New Yorkers are open even if they're not really friendly. Like, I think that um, if that happens, I think that person is probably going to follow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's not going to follow up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, there are other things like, you know, living in Minnesota, I am literally appalled by how wussy New Yorkers are about winter. It's like, it's 40 degrees. I wear shorts. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> People, and like, you know, the threat of snow is coming. Oh and my like, God. There, there'll be no water left on the shelves. I know. And, you know, all the supplies are gone. Heaven forbid four inches of snow hit Manhattan. It's a bloodbath. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I've taught class during 28 inches of snow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, a student didn't show up. I'm like, dude, you failed my class. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, everybody else was here. <laughs> All right, last question for Marlon James. Ooh. One piece of good advice. One piece of good advice is also the corniest advice I ever got, but it has different resonance for a writer. It was to believe in your work. And that sounds corny, but the, the follow-up, the, the, the caveat line the person told me is, because if you are a writer, you're going to have a moment where you're the only one who does. I was like, oh, I get it. Because I didn't learn that lesson with the first book. I threw it a book. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, can 78 people be wrong? Turns out, yeah, they can. Marlon, what a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. This was great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. 
It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.